Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, is it bad that the only thing I got from that video is that Pastor Trevor's like really cool? I was like, man, that's awesome. And uh, I don't know why you clapped before the sermon. You know, there's only one place to go after that. Downhill. I needed a sign, like hold your applause, wait until afterwards, and then we'll decide, or you'll decide. Summer road trip, we're starting our series. How many of you have already been on a road trip this summer? Already gone on vacation, mountains, beach, somewhere. Some of you are shaking your heads pretty sadly. You're like, no, we haven't actually. Don't feel ashamed. There's still time. You can go. Uh, I have a question for you. And those of you joining us online, I want you to type this in the comments. For you, what is the most important thing that you take on a road trip? You're like, I can't leave home without this. Shout it out. Let me hear it. A phone. A bathing suit. Fishing pole sunblock, a car, hey, it's hard to road trip without a car, isn't it? What else? The kids. <laughs> oh, it's awfully quiet in here. Did we forget something? Family? All right, type that into the comments here. Um, I don't leave, especially if we leave early in the morning, I don't get in the car without coffee. It just doesn't work. It's not gonna be a good start to the road trip. Also, I like to bring my own headphones. I don't know if it's legal or it's safe, but I put them on and I block the other five members of my family in the car out. I listen to my music when I drive or my podcast or whatever I want. We are taking a road trip through the scriptures. We're gonna go sightseeing through the scriptures and the, the team that has put this series together, I love it because they have prayerfully picked out some really key parts of the text to show us how it fits together, to show us how there is narrative cohesion to the overarching story of the Bible and to show us how does it shape our lives? How does it shape how we think, feel, and live, and lean into this world? So today, we will be road tripping back into Genesis, which I'm very, very excited about. Pastor Jeff gives Pastor Trevor a hard time all the time because he's like, man, all you talk about is the garden, Trevor, in Genesis 1, and little did he know that I geek out over the beginning of the Bible as well. I'm really excited about it. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we are here, gathered to hear from you, gathered to meet with you. We need you to speak, so we open up our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would surprise us. We pray that you would inspire us. We pray that you might disturb us where we've grown too comfortable. And most of all, we pray that we will grow closer to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last year we had just moved here and we had a few days to kill before I started work. So I said, let's go on a road trip. So we took the family up to North Carolina to go to Sliding Rock. I had heard of it, never seen it. I thought that's pretty exciting. You get in a river and slide down a rock. So there's element of danger to it. That's fun. So we get up there and we pull into the parking lot and it's completely empty. And the, the, the people working the station said, well, because of COVID, we're not letting anybody go down Sliding Rock. They were super disappointed, but we said, well, can we just go look at it? Can we go see it? And they said, yeah, you can go look at it and go see it. So me and my wife and four kids, we walked to the ledge and we stood near the handrail and we looked over and we saw this beautiful river in Pisgah National Forest and come down and it went over this long, slick rocks, this big slide. And in the end, there's a little bit of a fall, but this big pool and it looked amazing. And we were so excited to do it but we couldn't do it, so we put it on the calendar. Hey, we are going back to Sliding Rock. So just a few weeks ago, 
we went back to Sliding Rock. And the kids had seen it, but we hadn't experienced it yet. And so you can imagine the conversation. It was like, oh, what's it going to be like? Is the water going to be cold? I said, absolutely. It's going to be very, very cold. And they began to talk about, is it going to be fast? Uh, I'm a little bit nervous. Is it safe? Are there lifeguards there? Has anyone ever got hurt there? Are the lines long? All of these sorts of things. And so we got there and we pulled in about 11 a.m. The sun was shining down and we got down in line and the water was ice cold. We get in and we see the kids do it and they go down sliding rock and we're just screaming and loving life and it was an incredible time. And maybe for you, when we go back to the beginning of the Bible, maybe you've road tripped there and you've peered over the ledge and you've just peeked in a little bit and you've seen a little bit, maybe you did, heard some sermons on it or a Bible study or maybe you have gone wholeheartedly dove in. No, I've experienced Genesis. I've read commentaries. I'm at a seminary level on Genesis. I get the beginning of the story. Wherever you are, I think we're going to discover something new, maybe even surprising. And here's why I'm passionate about the early chapters of Genesis, because they help keep the story big. One of the greatest threats to religion is to make religion small. One of the greatest threats to religion is to make religion small. A a, a small God, a small life, a small view of other people, a small view of ourselves, a small heart, a small mind. You say, well, how how have we made religion small? Well, I would say this. If we could just say, if we could just ask any average Christian, what is the basic story of the Bible? They would probably say something like this. Well, the basic story of the Bible is... Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins so I could go to heaven. Fair? That's that's the gist of what we're working with. Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins so I could go to heaven. Here's the challenge with that. It's a good place to start, but it's not a good place to stay. It's a good Bible school lesson, but as we grow and mature in Christ, I wonder if there's something bigger. In fact, did you see what that does to humanity? Let's, look, let's put that in a story analysis real quick. This is just a basic story analysis. God is the sender. Jesus is the agent. He's the one that God sends, got something to do. The task that Jesus is accomplishing is salvation, and the recipients are us. Do you see what that does? It makes humanity really passive. It makes me kind of the center point of the story. Do you know what this leads to? It leads to bad T-shirts, This leads to like really bad Christian t-shirts. Now, there's a lot of bad ones out there, but this leads to like really bad ones. Like ones that have the earth on fire and like, oh, God's gonna judge the world and we gotta get out of here. Like we gotta escape to heaven. Or ones that imply like being a creature of the sixth day and being on this planet is not a good thing. So therefore we gotta leave it. Those are bad t-shirts. And I wonder if there's something bigger for us that makes me that makes me and you the point of the story and we're just kind of waiting around then I guess to tell other people about salvation and maybe like let's just hurry up and get to heaven what if there's something more for us to do is there a bigger storyline and I think there is and that's why we're going into Genesis 1 and 2 today you see the Bible is a front-loaded story it's a front-loaded story For many of us, we read the Bible like we show up late to a movie. We come in 10, 15 minutes late, and we're like, yeah, there's stuff happening, but I'm not sure what the plot is or the setting, and some characters look good or bad. I don't quite know what's going on, and we're a little bit lost, maybe because we started in Genesis 3 or the book of Exodus, and we start with sin. 
as opposed to creation. I wonder if God has something for us today. So we are going to tour Genesis 1 and 2 and see if we can't find some tourist attractions. There's always things to look at when you go sightseeing, and we're going to see if we can't find some tourist attractions. I have three of them for us and a so what. Attraction number one, we're made in the image of God. Attraction number one, we're made in the image of God. Now, you may say, okay, I've heard this before, and that's good because in the past two decades, probably, a lot of scholarship has been done to kind of revive Genesis and what it means for humanity to be made in the image of God. And some might say, well, being made in the image of God means that we have value, and it means that we matter, and life is precious. And that's true, but that's not all that Genesis 1 is trying to accomplish. The image of God in Latin is actually called the Imago Dei. Everybody say Imago Dei. Excellent. Now you can impress your friends at the coffee shop, right? When you're sitting there talking about God and creation and you say, oh, yeah, 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 the Imago Dei, as you sip your coffee with your pinky in the air, showing how bougie you really are. (laughs) Genesis 1, 26 through 28, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign, if you're taking notes, write this down or underline this. Other translations say rule. Another translation says have dominion. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Adults, you you know what this means, right? I don't have to spell it out for you, do I? Okay, good. I'm just making sure you were getting God's innuendos in the text. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign, some of y'all, maybe later. Somebody tell them later, tell them later. Reign reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the animals that scurry along the ground. Two times rain. Genesis 1 is prosatry. It's part prose, it's part poetry, and this is the apex of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, 27 being in the middle. God creating humanity and saying, I'm creating them in my image. They're image bearers. Every single person is an image bearer. They'll say, well, what does that mean? Well, some have said, well, to bear God's image means to resemble God somehow. Like uh, we have faculties, uh, thinking, and we make rational choices, and we have emotions, and we have a will, and we do things, and we resemble God. That's partly true. Maybe being in the image of God means that we are made for a relationship. We're wired to be with each other and be with God. That's partly true. Maybe the image of God means that we reflect him somehow. We reflect his goodness and beauty out into the world. That's also partly true. What the truest sense of Genesis 1 is trying to say is that you and I are God's representatives in the world. That's why you don't see him, because we're here to represent him to everyone else. We are God's 
vice regents. This, this is why it's, I said underline reign or rule or have dominion. We are to steward God's kingdom of love, justice, and mercy to every square inch of the universe. It's less about material, static, like worth that's there. It's more about function and agency. And you and I got something to do. And if we do it well, the world gets to receive blessings and not curses. And if we don't do it well, then the world receives curses and not blessings. You see? And when we tour Genesis 1, we have to remember we're reading somebody else's mail. How would an ancient Israelite have heard this? And the ancient Israelite would have looked around at all the other nations, and all the other nations had this language as well. The other nations had tribes and a worship life and a God, and they would have thought about it like this. This is what the image of God meant to the other nations. There was a God, and then that God had an image, and that image was the king, was the ruler, and that ruler was to reign and on behalf of that God, uh, do the God's wishes, do the God's will, carry out the God's desire uh, for the nation and over people. So you get the picture. So Moses says, yeah, 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 our relationship with God is like that and it's not like that. And he takes this and he subverts it and he flips it on its head and says, this is what it's like to be made in the image of God. There's God, and then guess what? Who's in the image of God? Not just royalty, not just the king, not just the monarch, but commoners. You and I, everybody, male and female, completely countercultural. God's always up to something new and subversive. And guess what? We don't get to rule over other people. We rule over the non-human world. That's what's going on. He says, you are my vice regents. God is delegating power. He says, you got something to do. And God takes an incredible risk, incredible gamble with his own money and says, if it goes well, so goes the world. That's what he does. Have you noticed in Genesis 1 through 3, he, or what days 1 through 3, he is naming things. He is ruling. There's the sun, there's the sky, there's the stars. He's making partitions. He's setting up time and he's drawing boundaries and borders. In days 4 through 6, he doesn't do any of it. Why? He gives it to you and I. He says, I'm delegating this to you. Reign well, rule well. To name something was to have authority over it. In my stead, you are to steward my kingdom well. That's why, if you, if you watch or read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, that's why Lewis, you know what he names? He gives the titles of the four kids. It's King Peter, King Edmund, Queen Lucy, Queen Susan. Lewis knew this. That's why Aslan sometimes shows up and sometimes doesn't because he says, a humanity, you're my representatives over all the world. Reign well, rule well. You have agency. If you submit to me and do life my way, blessing. But if you disobey and forfeit that privilege, curses. Being made in the image of God means we bring chaos into order. All the other creation narratives surrounding Genesis would have involved some form of violence. 
some god destroying some other powerful beast or leviathan or some type of chaos. Uh, that's why the spirit's hovering over dark waters in, in, in the early chapter, right? So some god would have had to use violence or force to bring order out of chaos. And that's why with Yahweh, you don't see that at all. You see him using his power to subdue and to, like an artist, sculpt out creation. And we are to bring order out of chaos. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. I was talking with Pastor Jeff this week as we were trying to hash some of this out in sermon prep, and he was like, I think he stumbled onto something gold. Maybe he didn't stumble. Maybe he already knew it, and I thought he stumbled. Uh, he, he said, you know, a sermon is like this because you come together, and you have all these ideas, and you got all these uh, different ways in which to go. And if it's, anything, if it's like me on Monday, I just like free association brainstorm. I have both hands going at the same time on these big sticky pads that I got in my office. And it's like a thousand different thoughts, a thousand different ways we could go. And then what we're doing is we're praying and we're editing and we're bringing it to the community. And we're saying, uh, how does this look? How does this sound? And then we're going back and we're praying and we're editing and we're sleeping on it and looking at it again. And then we're praying and we're editing and we're whittling it down. And then on Thursdays when I like to sound my out, and so I'm saying it out loud, like, does it sound too crazy? How will that sit? How does it sound? Where are we going to go with this? And hopefully, we keep whittling away the chaos and bringing it into order so that on Sunday morning, when you come here, it's not too chaotic. There's something coherent and cogent. There's order to it. And we are reliving the Genesis account in that. And here's the reality. You do this every day as well. Parenting. Parenting is bringing order out of chaos, changing diapers, making lunches, helping kids get ready for school and on the bus or getting them to school. You are bringing order out of chaos. Disciplining them in a helpful way is saying, you know what, we need you to fit in somewhat to society so society accepts you and it's a very loving thing to do so that they don't reject you when you leave the house. That's very unloving to do. So we are not letting you rule the house. That's chaos. We are structuring the house in such a way that you can thrive and it's for your benefit. But this is what you do at work every day. If you own your own business, you look out and you manage it and you say, okay, how do we bring order out of chaos? How do I lead this team? How do I inspire them and motivate them and give them reviews and help them achieve goals? And you're bringing order out of chaos. This is what people do when they farm. This is what people do when they tend to their lawn and they look outside and they see all these dandelions here and all the weeds and they say, ah, it's too chaotic, I can't handle it. So they go outside and they bear the image of God and we're bringing order out of chaos. Some of you wanna know, I, I just don't, want to, I don't know what it means every day to, to obey God or to be faithful to God. How about start with this? Every day wake up and say this, where's a little bit of chaos that I can bring order to? Where's a little bit of chaos that I can bring order to? That's how you're faithful to God. That's what it means to bear out God's image. We went and saw a former professor uh, from CIU. Me and my wife both graduated from there. And so we went over to his house and he started when we were there and then we, we only had him for a few classes and then we were gone, but he's still a professor there. He came out on the front porch and I swear he hadn't shaved in like six years, big white beard like Moses. I said, hey kids, Moses. And uh, he welcomed us uh, into his tabernacle, so to speak. And we went in and our kids are really great kids, uh, but they, they can handle only so much adult conversation, you know, like normal people. And uh, so they're sitting there about 10 minutes in, I can just start see them fidgeting. 
eyes start to roll, like this is really boring. How are we gonna, how are we gonna last, Dad? Like what do you expect from us here? All of a sudden, uh, one of them looked around the corner and there was this toy that was really meant for toddlers and our youngest is eight. And uh, I saw them kind of looking around the corner at this toy and they kind of looked back at me and look at Dr. Crutchfield and look at it and Dr. Crutchfield's like, did you wanna play with the toy castle? And uh, I secretly love it when my kids still play with stuff meant for like ages five years younger than they were, 10 years younger than they were, because I'm like, oh, they're not growing up too fast. And so they're like, yes, we would love to play with this. So they go over there and it's this big gray castle that kind of folds into half and then there's this Tupperware box next to it with the lid on it and so they unfold the castle and they take the Tupperware lid off and there's a red dragon and a green dragon and I was like, I wanna come play with you guys and uh, there's knights and uh, soldiers and there's catapults and they get this all out and then you can hear them start to organize and then they start to storytell. And what's going on here? And who's gonna fight this dragon? Why do we need to fight this dragon? And this buzz began to happen. And I was like, ah, they're playing. Playing is a form of creating. They're bringing order out of chaos. We are made to work and to play and to do relationships and parent and be married in such a way that brings order out of chaos. This is why sin is so devastating, because sin introduces chaos into order. Sin turns stewardship into stealing and dominion into domination. What we were supposed to say, yeah, it's, it's ours, but it's really God's and we're supposed to steward, and what we were to have dominion over, which is no other living person, we take that and we steal, or we have domination over somebody else, and we violate their image physically, verbally, spiritually, emotionally. That's what the essence of what it means to sin against somebody else is to transgress their dignity as an image bearer and try to make them like me. That's why God says no, not like that. That's not how you're to reign and rule. Attraction number one is we're made in the image of God. Attraction number two is that creation is God's divine dwelling. Creation itself is God's temple. Look at Genesis 2, 1 through 2. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So what? So he rested from all his work. And you say, I don't see it. I don't see it from there that you say creation is God's divine dwelling, that the whole thing, one and two, is talking about the universe as temple. Well, it's right here in this little phrase, so he rested from all his work. Whenever I think about God resting from his work, I'm always wondering for a, a really good explanation. Like, what does it mean, and why did God rest from his work? And most of the time, people say, well, I don't really know. Uh, God doesn't need to rest, so there's that. Um, maybe it was just an example. Maybe he's giving humanity example, an example and so that we don't work seven days and we're supposed to take a day off and maybe that's what it is. And it's not that it's not true, but I was always longing for something more. It's like that doesn't quite add up. Let me explain it like this. Surrounding the Israelites would have been other nations and other tribes, and those tribes would have had gods, and those gods would have, need, would have needed a place to dwell to prove that they're a legitimate god. And that god would have 
um, in their mind, provided for them, protected them, kept them safe. So they would have needed a place to come and to offer sacrifices or offerings to secure the God's protection. Um, This is formulaic. This is almost akin to magic, and it's nothing like we see of God's relationship with his people. But what you have is this tribe who needs to prove that their deity is legitimate, so what do they do? They build a temple. They build a house of worship. They maybe uh, have people donate. They donate funds or they donate their resources, like settlers of Catan, there's lumber and bricks and everything, and they're getting these resources together. And then they're building a temple, and when they build the temple and they finish the temple, they dedicate the temple. You tracking with me? They dedicate the temple, and after they dedicate the temple, guess what happens? That deity comes to reside or rest in the temple. And what is going on here is God is saying, I'm gonna make my own, thank you, and I'm going to construct the cosmos and every star and every planet, every solar system and every sea and every square inch of the universe is mine and after I finish constructing it, I'm gonna dedicate it and I'm going to take up residence in it and rest in my temple. Much like a president goes throughout their campaign and finishes their campaign and then they take up residency in the White House, they are resting from their campaign, but in some senses their work has just begun. This is what God is saying. All of it's mine. It's all mine. That's why the Bible says that the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. It really is filled with the glory of the Lord. It's all his Look at Proverbs 3, 19 through 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Now, the words founded and established are actually in Hebrew architectural terms. They're also used in Proverbs 24 that say, by wisdom, a builder builds a house. There's construction going on. There's building going on. And God is saying, by wisdom, I founded and ordered all creation and then I took up residency in it so the whole thing is temple. So I'm not saying anything negative about what we do on Sunday morning in a building that's constructed or other buildings that are constructed, but when you're out on the lake or you're out on a hike or you're at the top of a mountain, it's all temple. It's all his. Every square inch of it. Look at Isaiah 66. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. Where is the house you'll build for me? Where will my resting place be? And Genesis 1 is signaling to us, oh, the whole thing is a blueprint for temple. Now let me ask you this. If you're a God and you have a temple, who do you need in that temple? You need priests. And what do priests do? They intercede for others and they mediate the knowledge of God. So now here's another layer to being made in the image of God. Not only do we have royalty upon us, but there's also a priestly nature to it. It's kingly and priestly in our role to intercede for others and to mediate to others the knowledge of this God who resides in the cosmic temple. That's why, that's why 
when Adam and Eve are in the garden and an unclean animal comes into the presence of the temple, which it's not supposed to do, they weren't even supposed to entertain a conversation. In fact, Adam should have known this is an unclean presence in the divine temple. Adam should have crushed the serpent's head and expelled the evil presence from the garden. But he didn't. Instead, he take the path that most of us take, the sin of omission. I think the sin of omission might be a little worse than the sin of commission. Something that we know we're supposed to do, but we don't do it. And we take the passive route. What evil presence do you need to expel from your life? What is something that has crept into temple and you've allowed it, you've had conversations, it's festered, it's grown, it's put division in between you and loved ones, it's caught bitterness in your own heart. And God is saying, expel it from the temple. That's your job as priests. What do you see in the world today of injustice and oppression and hatred? That's our job to look out at the landscape and say, it's not supposed to be this way. By creative power, not violence, but by creative force, can we somehow sculpt a new future together? Let's eradicate the evil from the temple. And Genesis 1 says, it's all temple. Attraction number three, and this is the last one. Proper relationship is central to fully functioning humanity. Proper relationship is central to fully functioning humanity. All this means is this, and we don't really like it. It means this, that we're made to be dependent people. We're made to need each other. We're made to need rest and food and laughter and leisure and work. We're made to need God and church and small group and spiritual rhythms. Those are all good things. Those are not sin things. Those are human things. Let me illustrate. Uh, back when I did youth ministry, uh, we used to take a group of about 50 students and we would cross the border uh, of El Paso and go into Juarez, Mexico and build houses. And it's amazing what people just sign off for their kids to go on, right? I was, I was like, this is where the cartel is. There's drug violence. There's like cult murdering going on there. It's all over the news all the time. And we would, I was always surprised, like 50 kids and the parents see the waiver, like, yeah, going to Juarez, what, kids are gone for a week? Yeah, 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 you can go, you can go. I'm trusting God, just trusting God with the kids. So we would go over into Juarez and we would drive for two days to get there and they would, we would work like crazy to put a house together and they would call it a house, we would not call it a house. It was one room, concrete slab. Uh, it did have uh, some uh, two by four structure with some insulation and then some stucco and chicken wire around it and a roof and a light with electricity and to them it was a house. It's better than cardboard. And we would get up at the crack of dawn and we would work like crazy until siesta time, my favorite time. And we'd come back and we'd eat and we'd take a little siesta. And then we'd go back to work and we would work hard until dinner time. And then we would come back at dinner time and we were sweaty and we were filthy and we were smelly and we had cooks back at the church that we were staying at. But we would sit around a table and we would eat and we would tell stories and we would laugh and we would drink Mexican Coca-Cola, which for some reason just tastes so amazing. 
and we would be refreshed. And we realized that we needed each other. We needed help to get the job done. And then we needed people after that to be refreshed by. Look at Genesis 3.8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. In the ancient east, the cool of the day was the evening. After all the work had been done, after humanity was dirty and sweaty and they had plowed the field, they came back and they sat around a table with who? With God. And they ate and they shared stories and maybe they sang songs and they laughed and they had communion together. The implication of this passage is that this was a regular occurrence in the rhythm for humanity that God actually likes hanging out with people. It's just true. Do you believe God loves you because theologically he has to? Or do you believe God loves you because he actually delights in you? He actually gets something from you when he spends time with you. He enjoys being in your presence. You belong to him. And he pursues that type of communion every day. That's what we were made for. Perfect shalom. No shame, no fear, no defenses going up, no protective walls, just pure vulnerability spiritual and emotional between us and God, between us and each other, between humanity and itself. You see the devastation of sin, especially today with that, self-hatred, self-condemnation, self-harm is not supposed to be there. And our relationship to the ground, sin broke all those things, shattered all those things. But if we read the Bible carefully and in order, we see that we are creatures before we are sinners. Do you see that? I wonder what our relationships would be like if we viewed ourselves and each other through the lens of original blessing before original sin. I'm not making light of sin. Sin's a serious thing, but it doesn't come first in the Bible. Original blessing comes first. The Imago Dei comes first. God's fellowship with humanity. So maybe you might even start trusting your own dreams and impulses instead of saying, oh, that thing deep within me that says we gotta do something new and fresh and dream out loud, that's bad. What if it's good? And maybe it's less suspicion and less distrust with others around you, expecting betrayal. Maybe it's more, no, we're gonna go in here and we're gonna see where God's at work. Would our relationships be different? Proper relationship. Being a dependent person is normal. Sometimes we come to the community of faith and all we have is our neediness and our loneliness and our isolation and that's all we bring to the table that morning. And guess what? That's okay. Come as you are. I thought that was what church was about. So with all this in mind, I wonder if there's a bigger story actually at play than just I gotta get salvation and then get out of here. I wonder if there's something larger at work. In fact, with Genesis 1 and 2 in mind, I wonder if this might be the story that we're looking for. If God is the sender, 
He's the creator God. And if we're actually the agents, if he looks at humanity and says, you are a kingdom of priests, that sounds like familiar language, ruling and priestly duties, a kingdom of priests, and you are to steward my kingdom of love, justice, and mercy all over the world. But guess what? You can't defeat the obstacle of sin, can you? In fact, sin made you subhuman, so you are no longer able to carry out your mission, but I'm gonna send you a helper, and this is where the cross gets really big, not really small. I'm gonna send you a helper named Jesus, and he's gonna die on the cross being the perfect human, and he's gonna raise from the dead, and when he does, he's going to restore humanity to its proper state so that we can be fully functioning, so that we can what? Once again, carry out the mission that we were originally designed to do. That's what salvation means. That's what the Bible aims at. That's why it's not a small story. It's an incredibly attractive story. And if that's the story we start telling, I wonder if more and more people won't come to see Jesus. And if we do it well, universal blessing. He comes to make his blessings know far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. And when we steward that kingdom well, by the grace of Jesus, because we can't beat the obstacle of sin, but when we do it through his strength, universal blessing, and the nations see and delight in him. So what does this mean for us? Very, very briefly, four small things. First, it means reign properly. Reign properly. Some of you are scared. You're scared to live big lives. You're scared to step out and do something different. I understand that. I have that fear, I have those doubts, but God says, no, 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 I've called you to it. Take up the task, take up the mantle and do it. Some of us have been reigning in a way though that is less dominion, it's more domination. And we need to repent for the way that we've tried to control other people. And let me just say this, Christians should be some of the biggest advocates for creation care. Reign properly. Secondly, accept that we're dependent people. We're dependent people. I need you, you need me, that's okay. We need each other. We need each other to know who we are. We need each other to know what we're supposed to be up to. We need each other to know God better. That's how the Bible reads. It's not just about me and Jesus, it's about us. Thirdly, worship is holistic. Because it's all temple, worship is holistic. Work is worship, leisure is worship, sex is worship, play is worship. Some of you are asleep, not anymore. Eating is worship, school, I'm sorry students, it's worship. Because the whole thing is temple, everything that humans do can be an act of worship. This is what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. And lastly, let's get to work. We have stuff to do. And you have something to do that only you can bring to the table. You have some unique gift, some unique presence, some unique genius, some unique skill that only you can bring to the table. And only you can get rid of that chaos. Only you can expel that evil presence from the temple. So let's get to work together. And let's do it well for his sake. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the beginning of your story. It really is mind-blowing when we look at it, when we hear it. It really does invite us 
to see anew what it means to be human, everything that went wrong and our responsibility in it and then what we can do to begin repair. I don't feel that this makes you any less or any small, any smaller. God, in my mind, it just increases my love and heart for you. Help us to understand what are we to do in this world right now to bring your kingdom, to bring shalom, to bring peace? What are we to do? Now, for those with fear and doubt, I pray for courage and faith. For those who have recognized that they're using their skills and gifts and strength to control someone else, I pray for repentance. God, for those of us who are confused about what we're supposed to be doing, I pray for clarity as we go forward. May we know deep within our own worth and may we live out of that. You've given us royal and priestly tasks. By your grace, help us to fulfill them well. Thank you for letting us journey back into the garden. May we steward this knowledge well. In Christ's name.